Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden makes the best acrylic paints, matte colors, fluorescent colors, varnishes, mediums, high flow paints, Williamsburg oils, core watercolors, and so much more. Golden maintains a culture of individual excellence and community involvement. They have sponsored Paint Day to provide the people who make the paint experience painting and Kids Day when kids come and see their parents work and get to use the product. The Seconds program offers paint that doesn't meet Golden Standard and offers it at little or no cost to employees, local artists, or nonprofit organizations. Golden constantly strives to outdo itself by operating on three principles. Make the best products, provide customers with the best service, and find people who can make the first two happen. You can find Golden at your local art store or online at goldenpaints.com. Peter Crashes lives and works in Brooklyn, New York. He's a graduate of the University of Oxford and Middlebury College. He's had solo exhibitions at James Gallery, SUNY Graduate Center, Illinois State University, Theodore Art in Brooklyn, Co-op in Nashville, Tennessee, Derek Eller Gallery in New York, Momenta Art in Brooklyn, and White Columns in New York. His group exhibitions include Xianning Art Museum in Shenzhen, China, Elizabeth D. Gallery in New York, and Galerie Chez Valentin in Paris, France. He's taught in numerous places, such as the Cooper Union School of Art, Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture, and American University. Peter's a recipient of a Marshall Scholarship and a Joan Mitchell Painters and Sculptors Grant. Reviews of his work have appeared in New York Times, Time Out New York, Huffington Post, Hyperallergic, and The New Yorker. For the last 16 years, his community organizing has focused on a wide range of issues in Prospect Heights, Brooklyn. His paintings focus on some of the broader themes of his advocacy, like the beauty of empowering others and the frustration of advocacy aimed to shape government decision-making. I spoke with Peter from his Brooklyn home studio, right in the hotbed of where all the protests have been happening in Brooklyn, for a talk about advocacy, painting's role, working in the community, the state of our world, and much more. Here's our conversation. So it's, I'm, I'm sorry to be talking to you under these circumstances that it got, <laughs> that 2020 got to this point. It, oh, who can believe 2020? I mean, yeah. I, I think, um, in a way, I mean, I, I was thinking about this in advance, and I thought that it, in the circumstances are, for me, as an artist, they've been kind of uh, paradigm change, changing. I mean, my work, how I think about my work, what it looks like to me and probably to others is, is, has been affected. And so that's really, um, so it's a nice chance to talk. And honestly, since we've all been so sheltered in, I haven't talked that much. So we'll see where this goes. <laughs> but I, but um, I mean, it, to paint a picture, I mean, we're, we're just a, block and a half from Barclays Center and, and um, there are uh, barricades, police barricades just down the street, not where, you know, often we're asked to show our IDs to pass through. Yeah. Uh, we, we can talk about that a little, but I think basically we're 
Kate, you know, we, we're used to having in the last 10 days to two weeks, we're used to having helicopters over, you know, late at night overhead. We're, uh, we've had prote- protests come right by. We're obviously, we're going to protests. And um, um, it's been a, as a community activist uh, or uh, an advocate, it's um, certainly to have this happening in your immediate neighborhood with your is just very profound and um and charges you know our neighborhood is already very charged for me and so to have this occur on top of everything else just animates and and uh affects the way that you walk down the street and you see a a tree and it means something for for one circumstance and then you see some the tree and it it means something else because the circumstances it's changed so much you know it's almost like Um, if your work was you like to go bird watching and paint birds, and then you live in the city, and they put an aviary right next door. Right, <laughs> like it's right there. Right, that's pretty much it. Or yeah, except that it's uh, seeing people come together uh, passionately to fight for something that's larger than themselves, and in some cases making sacrifices, really quite large sacrifices to do it, um, is so moving. Um, and it has sort of been one of the themes of my work, and a kind of a quiet way, exactly that kind of thing. Um, so it's, uh, it's, that is one of the subjects. So it's not just like the protests have never been a subject, in, but that I've, I've used protests and like I've, uh, the, uh, even the advocacy itself is just a platform for, to get to something else. And so um, that something else is so evident outside. It's so beautiful that, um, um, it's sometimes been hard just to focus. I mean, there, there were three or four days where, you know, our whole house was just kind of like, <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> yeah. How can we orient ourselves? We're just, we're all just so disoriented. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. But it's, uh, anyway. So, but so the, if we are going to hear noises during this call, it could easily be a helicopter or something. So it's, or a siren going by. Is it yeah. still, um, because, you know, I'm in North uh, Brooklyn, so I'm a little, I think McCarran Park is like the closest thing to me mm-hmm. where people are gathering and it's usually been like silent stuff. Is it still like, going strong every day there? No, well, it's quieted down. I think the bit last big day was Sunday, um, mm-hmm. and that was pretty active. We <laughs> we looked out our, our front windows uh, at some point on Monday night, and I'm pretty sure, I think it was Monday night that we saw we can see a block away to Atlantic Avenue and we saw, saw uh, marchers and, and you know, flashing police lights, which is a sign that if you look closely, you'll see the whole march in front of it. Yeah, <laughs> so, right. like, so you could, it's, uh, so Monday was something, uh, I think it was a march from Crown Heights into, into uh, uh, moving towards the city. I don't know if they stopped at Park Place or not. So uh, there's markers, like things that people have left behind, you know, like uh, a uh, chalk on the plaza out out in front of the um, out, out out front of the arena. The uh, Ursula von Reinsvard got uh, graffitied. <laughs> I had a feeling that was going to happen. <laughs> it did, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and it. Uh, um, I won't. I, uh, the act, I can't. Re- I can remember what it said roughly, but it, and it, but it's not for. Uh, Maybe, I don't know if I, I suppose that you're not you don't have to worry about um, 
um, being uh, you know beeped around those words. Yeah, <laughs> I used to DJ. They called it NAQ, not it, air quality. Right. Well. <laughs> Yeah, I, I yeah I can't remember the exact acronym, but it definitely uh, was a summary for "fuck fuck the police" yeah. <laughs> on Ursula von Reinsberg. I wonder how she re- like. I wonder how it feels to have work in the public realm that gets you know sort of if you're championing it and like yeah that's part you know what I mean because I'm mm-hmm. sure part of you when you make a piece when it gets def- well not defaced but well defaced you know or someone you know add something to it like that without your permission i wonder how that feels you know i i mean and i have i have met her once before she's a very smart and sensitive woman so this is not you know this is not specific to her i i think um that the um i can imagine that um it's par for the course especially in such a public setting yeah um but that it does create a um, it's startling. Like it's startling as a viewer to see, because you you know we're trained as artists. I think we all have such reverence for the art object, yeah. Um, and we're trained to have that. And you know, in a certain sort of way, I think in my, I've questioned that a lot in my career. But uh, to see it, that's a quite stark juxtaposition because you have actually what I think is a. a even almost an unusual public art piece because it's a a kind of a tornado of a abstract tornado underneath the oculus this round oculus of the arena so it's responding to the context and it's made out of uh, i think it's bronze with a you know it's got a patina on it and um so it's it's an unusual it's actually a kind of an unusual piece of art to be a public piece of art because yeah, it's striking it is, in that sense it's striking and it's more vulnerable yeah. and so whereas you know if you had other there's other kinds of public art pieces that would be less vulnerable to the interventions of others but this one is about the surface and the and the interactions of the light across these different uh, facets of the sculpture and yeah. and then to see you know like I think it was a kind of lime green <laughs> several you know several several interventions and it's like wow that's <laughs> like <laughs> that's uh, that those two have just made them each other something else like right. and it's definitely hard not to see it as a comment on art making and to um um, as a gesture, and uh, and in a way, I think it. Now that I, I mean, I don't want to jump into this, but I feel like well, why not? Like it's like in some ways. Now that I'm thinking about it, it's kind of distills down this challenge of the passion of activism and the imperatives of activism combined, uh, as juxtaposed with the um, the relatively uh, um, at least thought thought based and kind of more. Uh, slower processes of art making that t- tend to be slower, and so, um, and and also, um, oftentimes not as explicit in their goals or direction as as like if you if you're an activist, you know what you're trying to achieve, right? And you and you try to take the shortest route there. Um, if you're an artist, you're make your you, there's different kinds of artists, obviously, but in my case, I'm definitely somebody who is likely to start something not being quite sure what I'm trying to achieve, and I'm working it through as I'm going or I'm figuring it out, and um, and so or sometimes the work 
becomes something else after it's complete than I expected because there's transformation that occurs with my work, at least in my own eyes, um, mm -hmm. as I'm working. So um, that's a very different thing because you're just not, you're not, you're, you're always kind of trying to define goals as an artist, but you they shift and they get more complicated. And um, um, I mean, I, I don't want to summarize because there's obviously different approaches and there's different uh, types of artists and I think yeah, as a pa I, pa painting as a particular thing. You know? I think there's an underlying um, one of the sort of presumed values of artwork is that it it does have that gray area. You know, it's mm -hmm. not that defined goal, and in that sort of looseness and interpretation, there's a beauty in that. And there's there's a certain either misunderstanding or understanding that can happen there, but mm -hmm. it's about that process of trying to figure out what it is, what it's doing and all that. Mm -hmm. And I think that nuance where things aren't defined sometimes can be problematic, but sometimes it can be really useful. You know, when when things like this happened, when, you know, changes in culture and, and really significant uh, issues come up, there tends to be a black and white, no pun intended, or, you know, like a, 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 a polemic between two ideas. It's either this or that. And there's mm -hmm. a lot of gray area in it. You know what I mean? And things get boiled down to this kind of like right or wrong, left or right. And and I think art is really that kind of gray area. It it operates in this fuzzy, hazy zone. I mean, just thinking about that sculpture too, not to make this about her sculpture, but the idea of, of public art is this beautiful thing where people can go on the street and see artwork. Mm -hmm. It's there's there's something really valuable about that. Then there's also the it's kinda of like the art world in general. There's also this sort of privilege of it or the excess or the corporate money or there's the duality to everything you know and it's everything is this very complicated kind of uh, thing you know what I mean and, <laughs> and I think this just reverberates that but I, that's that's what I find really um, useful about art and really what sets it apart from a lot of other things yeah I mean I, I think um, that confused me for a long time because I you know when I initially you know, I was initially a painter who had a relatively conventional career, and I uh, would uh, make pieces of art that were shown in art galleries. And there was a certain point that I just kind of felt like, is that all there is? You know, is this is this is this is my dialogue the best I can do to in, improve the making, improve the dialogue or add to the dialogue about painting? Um, and there's, I'm not diminishing that. I think there's an enormous amount of value in that. And I, actually, as I get older, I appreciate it more and more. But I think at that time, um, I I felt empty a little bit. And especially, I think, the because my work has always been quite... has uh, been um, derived from my own personal experiences. And so in a certain way, it never quite explained itself sensibly to a collector. Like, like, why does a collector have to relate to this work? And, you know, and I would uh, be told, you know, don't talk about your work. <laughs> it, they love what it looks like. Right, but right. as soon as you start explaining it, it's like, um, uh, gets in their way. You're putting up a roadblock. Right. And um, I, I think that um, the pull of the activism happened right around the time when I did reach this point where where the painting was 
stalemated somehow. Like I, I knew that I was going to have to start removing more of the kind of explicit subject of my work and, and focus even more on painting. That's how I felt. And, and um, so when I initially uh, became a activist, it, it was because of a specific cause. And, and so I got drawn into it and um, kept the two worlds totally separate. So for the first year, um, even though I, f- I, 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 fall, I, I, fall, I, I let the activism un- unfold and I felt probably more of an imperative for the activism than in the studio, I continued on the same track with my work for a little while, for about a year. And then it just didn't work anymore. Like, then it just, it, I, I surrendered myself, let it happen some, and, uh, and honestly, you know, with, that was about 2004 and five, 2005, I, the, the feedback was really not positive. Like, I, you know, I'd have friends come in the studio and they're like, what are you? What are you doing? Right. You know, I had a, my my art dealer was was incredibly loyal and dedicated. Um, come into the studio and not relate at all, and say, you know, these works look like the B the B section of the New York Times, and no one wants that. <laughs> and uh, and so I just kept the work, kept making the work, and over time, over the years, I honestly it took years. Uh, I rarely exhibited I didn't really bother to try and the imperative of the activism was strong enough um, that I I kept doing that I knew that I didn't I mean I, I couldn't I wasn't objective enough about my own work to figure out what I was doing with it yeah. I couldn't really explain it to anybody and I think I, I can and now I have much more distance and I can see that like the first works were really angry like and and so of course I wouldn't have a distance. They're angry, but they're also not resolved, and they weren't in the sense that they had a clear endpoint. And this is to your point about a gray area. They were pursuing the gray area. They were expressive. Um, in fact, still I would say one of the strong undercurrents in all my work is frustration. <laughs> so like it's there, and it's uh, the ambivalence is an inherent part of the pieces themselves, and um, you can't. Ambivalence in activism simply helps neutralize passion. <laughs> and yeah. so um, you're, you know, and, and, and the kind of work that I have been doing is very complicated and nuanced, but the search is often to try to find that avenue forward which, which is least nuanced because that's what's going to be most likely to succeed. And I think... Um, um, when there's, as soon as there's multiple legitimate perspectives on something, it becomes very hard to move one of those perspectives forward unless you're in a position of power. So right. um, it's and then it's very easy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> did you uh, did you find that reception to the work had something to do slightly with the time too? Because if we're talking like 2004, it's the boom. Like they're you know financially the art world's doing Mm -hmm. pretty well at that point and things are selling and you probably were making paintings that were you know like you said it went from you know to the the b of the time you know it do you think part of that was that and it's just 
some of these things like when activism or when sort of political or conceptual work ha- fits in with a certain time and, and with galleries and dealers and stuff like that with certain collectors or whatever with the zeitgeist then it's then it's cool you know what I mean but then otherwise they're like oh just paint you know flowers or pictures of people you know what I mean I think that's part of it and I also think what I was saying before about needing in some respects to um, if your work doesn't have a defined audience um, and there's different kinds of audiences in art I mean there's like the collectors and there's the curators and museums and there's just a general audience of like you know the guy in the street and um, there's just a a lot of different audiences for it but if your work is is you know you in a minimum you're going to have an audience of one which is yourself and um i was really okay with that actually for some time so i think um it, it, and and that isn't a bad thing i mean i, I think that's actually like a, it's an extraordinary situation to allow yourself to do like it's an an, an extraordinary uh pattern to put yourself in to allow that to unfold because you do what you want to do and then you learn from that and some of it may succeed and some may fail but the audience is not part of your your consideration and then um and sometimes the audience comes to you and finds you and sometimes maybe it never does and i don't really know what's going to happen with my work but i but i think um, I do know that over time I've started to think more about the audience because there's a responsibility to to making art that that I think leads to leads you to naturally want to have an audience and to and to because um, you don't want to waste material. It's, otherwise, it can. I don't. I've never thought of my work as self indulgent, but I but I think. Um, that it, you could put it in a broad perspective. If you're just doing something for yourself, it does just become something that serves you, and and um, may never, no one else may ever relate to. But actually, I think in my case, I do think it. It's like you're exactly what you said. It's like the timing was, um, the, that you know, the economy was strong. Um, people made art and sold art, and. Um, that my work was hitting another note. It was in a different place. Its subjects were not um, things that people wanted to think about. And um, they might find it interesting to talk about a little bit, but they weren't really... um, And they would respect it. You know, there was an awful lot of, um, you know, patting on the back. (laughs) Congratulations. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but it's even if the theme of the work wasn't really what you know what they thought. Even now, I think I struggle a little bit with uh, with people projecting meaning into the work, assumptions about what uh, being a community activist is. That they they assume it comes with a certain kind of focus. Um, when because of circumstances, actually, a lot of my neighborhood and neighbors are focused on something. Um, that's different and broader and uh, sometimes has to reach deeper um, into government. So it's like, um, um, yeah, I mean, there's just so many um, presumptions 
that, and, and things that pe people project on all of our works, right? So it's right. like, uh, I mean, it's just that the more you put into your work narratively in the way that I do with using images that are from taken from you know, photographs that I took in real circumstances, then people tend to be able to project quite a lot into that. Mm -hmm. um, which goes back to what I started with, which is that you know the circumstances have been so par you know so change changing um, that my work keeps looking different to me. Yeah. <laughs> like every well, that, every week it's like, oh what? <laughs> that's good though, right? I mean that's that keeps you fresh in a way. You know, it keeps you engaged in it. Yeah, because it's uh it forces me to make choices in a different way, like uh, making a. Um, I'm struggling now, for example, with a, I'm, one of the next uh, paintings I'm going to make. It may be an image that, in the circumstances, would be projected upon, and in a, it, it seems to directly relate to the circumstances of now and the Black Lives Matters music, uh, Black Lives Matter uh, movement. But the uh, source is actually something very different. Mm -hmm. And I'm wrestling with that because I'm like, because I haven't had to think about, I've had work, work uh, change meaning in some ways and it's, been, and it's been very healthy and enlightening. But I haven't had, I, have, I don't think I've specifically chosen to move forward with something which, I knew the circumstances would construe in a different way than the circumstances originally. Even right. if the original circumstances are totally unimportant because they're, I'm choosing images because of their thematic connections to what I'm interested in. So it's, uh, and, I'm, and I'm, you know, isolating things out and in a, in a, typically choosing things that are very secondary in a moment to draw out some theme. Um, so... Um, yeah, it's interesting when you, because the viewer might not know that either. Like when this image was sort of thought up, you know, and like people, some people releasing music now or a movie or something that was done before, but at the time it feels so different. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like whatever the 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 environment when something is sort of um, ingested is, is conditional upon that environment, you know. But and and to you you know, it's, it becomes really important. It's like, oh, can I, what does this image mean now that I'm working with, you know? And like you were saying, like, you can look back at certain imagery. Like, I, seeing all these protests, I think in 2009, I was doing a series of work based on, like, freedom fighters or people resistance or, or things that were seen by some people as a really good thing and other people as a really bad thing or, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, I did this giant painting of a riot. And, it, you know, looking back at that painting, I just, for me, it was just visually, I find protests really, um, just the, the the optics of it are really compelling. Just mm -hmm. all these hands and body parts and signs and energy. And there's just this, you know, there's mm -hmm. a, a really compelling visual aspect to it that um, I've always been interested in. But like looking at that now, it feels totally different right now, of course. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess that's that's... And again, another beauty of artwork is that it can it can shape, it can move over time. It's like it's alive, you know. It's breathing with whatever's going on in the world. And, and it's uh, natural, for example, to like because um, I have I've also made some uh, paintings of protests and rallies, uh, and uh, not not holistic, you know, battle scenes or whatever, yeah, but yeah. you know, like honing in on things and. Um, 
I guess it speaks for the moment and the potency of the message of the moment that those paintings and that that imagery looks different now because it's so evident that the that the protest itself was seeking to achieve something else. Yes. Like, and I think that really speaks to the potency of the moment and how how uh, much so many people have been affected by this. I, you know, I'm sure, I, I feel anyway that it's like, and that is one of the, one, one of the very few circumstances where, um, where a effort for change has prevailed and spread so quickly and actually by and large so far uh, advanced successfully um, into into um, an audience that normally is really unreceptive to it. And as, you know, I think it seems like seven, 70% of the Americans support the protest. Um, yeah. That's to me, it's almost a reflex to be, react, re, to react, to be reactionary when you see a protest. You, you kind of like, who are these crazy people? You know, what, yeah. they're obsessed, they're... I mean, I think that's actually part of the response that I faced for years is that people were like, he needs to get some perspective. Right. Why, why is he, he's a great painter. Why isn't he just painting something else? Um, why doesn't he, it's his subject is his problem. Um, and, I, and I think that um, now even, I, I mean, I just, I just find it unusual, like, this is a this is a not this is almost not even once in a generational circumstance. This is actually something, you know, that feels even larger in some respects. And maybe it's just a flash in the pan. Like maybe it'll all burn. I hope not, but maybe it will all burn out in like three weeks. But I feel like there's been some real changes in the way that people think. Um, no, I definitely. Yeah. I, I think it's not. Um, you know, it's not a coincidence that this stuff is like video is so. Pre- prevalent and mm-hmm. and so pervasive like this stuff keeps happening and now it's caught on tape all the time i think it it's a lot easier for people to sweep things under the rug if they don't see it or the, right. there's not this sort of and you know everyone's home in a pandemic <laughs> you know like it takes you know a virus keeping everyone indoors to get everyone outdoors to like you know protest something i'm not literally it doesn't take that but i'm just saying i think that people were just you know coming off of that and just being stuck inside and feeling that way and then seeing this stuff and seeing people out there passionate and feeling like yeah this is something that I've got to lend a voice to and not sit down and be quiet about anymore I mean one hopes that it you know opens the floodgates into something bigger you know yeah yeah I think it's there's a so many people on their computers and on their cell phones looking at images but I, but I actually think the part what's happened also is that I think the pandemic made us so reprioritize in a very profound way. We were already going through something that was life altering because yeah. we were thinking about life and death things and having you know I have very elderly parents that I just I'm fretting about how I'm supposed to be ever to see them right you know yeah, yeah. and so we have that um, these are such profound priority shifts for all of us and then to see the issues of the you know to see those videos and then you're it's cuts right into 
that idea of like these are we're in a life and death time in some respects, and so you at least feel vulnerable more. You feel more vulnerability, more fear, and then you see something that plays into that sense of vulnerability, and uh, it it uh, it opens a, up a I think a, a an, em, an empathetic vein that has is typically really hard to open up, right. um, um, at least to open up fully. Um, plus, you know. Young kids don't have a job, so they right. they can take a bunch of days off and just go protest because they feel really passionately about it. Right. Um, Which, yeah. in all complete honesty, gives me a little bit of the heebie-jeebies that people are out there and the, I mean, the virus is still out there and people mm-hmm. are just out in these giant groups. I'm like, oh boy. But I mean, I know that they have to. It has to happen, and and I'm one hundred percent for it. But you you can't help but think like, oh, geez, not Ooh. opportune virus wise. Right, and I, and I, you know, and I'm in my mid fifties, and I have gone to some of these. Uh, I've been pretty careful, but there are moments where it's hard when the when a uh, a group moves, and then all of a sudden you the, that social distancing is lost. I think there's efforts to, and I've I've been double masking and kind of like trying to be really careful, and um, and I've. Uh, um, Avoided really dense crowds, and, and uh, I think in a lot of circumstances people are spaced pretty well. It's actually when people move that it becomes more of an issue. Um, yeah. And uh, there was a, a, a march that went by our house just uh, on uh, Saturday, um, right? <laughs> right. By, you all of a sudden you through the house. <laughs> You hear chanting, you're like, oh, I think there's something close by. And then you open up the window and there they are. <laughs> like you're looking right down. Um, and uh, I mean, it was hard to keep track on one day to the next. Where, and I think it has been uh, relatively uh, improvised. So um, to a degree anyway. So uh, that it, we live in a relatively narrow street. And, and so it was quite compact. And there was definitely a point when the march stopped and everyone was densely packed into the street and um, there was no social distancing there. If you were on the sidewalk, you were okay, but if you were in between the two lanes of park, park vehicles, then you were, then you were, um, you were definitely uh, back to back and, you know, belly to belly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isn't it people. amazing too in this country that you have that, you have these people marching for a really, you know, this cause and it's, passion and everyone's wearing masks and trying to be you know cautious about that and then there's like a news story about people in arizona no one's wearing masks everyone's hanging out going out or doing whatever and Mm -hmm. the cases are spiking it's like it's so frustrating yeah and and it's in 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 our neighborhood i mean it's uh, we have an issue because we have these barricades that i mentioned at the start uh uh which are stopping people and um they're manned by police officers who aren't wearing masks and yeah. they're um and if you really look at a lot of the if you've been to a march or you look at the um photos you will see often not all I mean, some officers are wearing masks but some many of them are not the majority i would say are not um in some circumstances none of them are wearing masks and um it is really uh concerning and so you you know you especially as as neighbors and if you're not even protesting you have to pass through these barricades, you're you're, and they're checking IDs in many circumstances. You're actually certainly not within. You're certainly six less than six feet away, and you're right. handing, you're exchanging stuff with them, and um, they're they're not wearing masks. So 
Um, this is why, you know, like being a community, like when you're, when you're working with people to improve circumstances in a, in a particular geographic area, just primarily what I have done, then you, um, you, and I've done it, I'm not alone, I've done this with a bunch of other people, um, yeah. you, you, um, have to sometimes from one day to the next something gets thrown at you that's completely different and this is like you know and then you have to learn a whole new set of regulations and you have to learn who who the, who to appeal to and um and often you find out there's nobody <laughs> or there is somebody but it's not going to be effective and so like you um um this is a yeah well uh, well I want to get into that but how did you get there so how Peter growing up. <laughs> how does it? How do we get from Peter growing up to you know community activist and painter and like when you were a kid were these traits within you that you think blossomed over time or like what what did you how were you growing up? I think it's in my genes. <laughs> yeah, I, um, were your parents <laughs> of this? <laughs> well, I'm kind of I uh, my. Um, I grew up in a, in a small town in Massachusetts on a dirt road, mm-hmm. um, which is still a dirt road, and my parents still live there in their 90s. Um, and uh, the, my mother is an artist, and my father is a metallurgical engineer, but they both were um, political and uh, at least in a, not in a, you know, they were politically aware and more than anything else, wholly prepared to shape their own opinions on things. So it's like my hometown was a small, at that time was a small farm town, you know, like about 11 or 1200 people in the center of Massachusetts, very rural. Um, and uh, 99.9% white. <laughs> and um, my which of course we, we were all unaware of at the time, yeah, <laughs> and <yeah>. um, <laughs> um, and it, the my parents I think were um, really eager to shape their own opinions about things, and and maybe because they came from elsewhere and moved into the town, they and it was run you know it was a town run by town meetings there was a you know people everybody in the town for any major issue or even for minor ones would go and that they'd have them on a list in the the town hall and i mean they'd all sit in a room together and raise their hands so the it comes town from hall an, was a town hall it literally like a Zoom town hall. it literally was a town hall right. um and everyone would sit together in the same room there were five town selectmen and they would they would uh put things to a vote it's quite extraordinary, and that's yeah. still the case, actually. And so, um, and public makes a lot of mistakes, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> um, but we, but you know, I guess that means that I don't know. I had a friend a, a long time ago, somebody, somebody who was also a New Englander, told me that um, that all the advocates and all the all the activists in New York City are were born in New England because there's kind of this presumption that you have a right to say what you know what the world should be like, right. <laughs> and uh, and uh, you feel quite entitled to, to to you know have your voice heard. And right. New York is not the same place. Like New York is exa- almost diametrically the opposite. So you. Um, um, 
I think that it's a, to answer your question, I mean, I, I think that my genesis comes out of that a little bit, but it's also, I think, just sort of a mix of um, multiple passions, like uh, caring about um, civic life and, and, um, and, and also caring about art and never quite bothering to resolve the diff- the two, you know, like, right. because in some ways maybe they aren't that resolvable. So, yeah. But I mean, that's pretty specific. I mean, they had, you know, political engagement and ideas about those things and your mother was an artist. So mm-hmm. you've got all the, all the components there. <laughs> yeah. And my mom is still, you know, like <laughs> she's, uh, she's, you know, very political. She's she's watching MSNBC now, and she's uh, um, says what she thinks. And yeah. uh, um, and my dad is, uh, you know, when I was when I can remember when I was young uh, during the um, Nixon, like Nixon's reelection, um, and the town was a Republican. And Massachusetts has a reputation for being like the home of the Kennedys, but it was a Republican town because it was yeah. a farm town, and. Um, I remember sitting in, you know, class, and uh, um, the teacher totally—I, I, I believe now, probably totally inappropriately—saying, <laughs> saying, "Who are you? Who, who would you vote for?" <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember that me and another, one, uh, another student raised our hands, and we were the only ones in the class that were going to be ra- voting for McGovern, and everybody else was going to vote for. <laughs> Bush, I mean not Bush. I just said Bush. Excuse me for uh, Nixon. Nixon, slip of the tongue. Um, and uh, yeah, it was. Uh, you know, of course, Nixon swept. You know, he didn't sweep Massachusetts, though. I don't think. But he, I think Massachusetts actually won. Went from a governor and and maybe uh, South Dakota or Minnesota or wherever he was from. Yeah. So you think <laughs> the the teacher wanted to find out who the enemies were? <laughs> uh, probably, yeah, but. Being a teacher, she might very well have been worried that everyone was going to vote for Nixon. (laughs) How many people do I got to speak some sense into here? Exactly. (laughs) It's funny, you know, not to sidetrack, but the farming, you said farming people usually are voting, you know, Republican. Where does that come from? Because aren't the economic policies of Democrats a little more, uh, well, maybe farming is different. But I'm thinking of, you know, as far as like class, you know, you always have, not always, there's a propensity for lower class, more rural people to vote. And it's probably the conservative aspect of it. But I feel like economically, it doesn't really necessarily always help them out. Not totally not uh, talking about our current president asking for a friend. <laughs> I mean, first of all, I'm not in any way an expert. I don't want to uh, uh, really address this much because I wouldn't <laughs> say something that's right but, or sensible. And, I, and I'm not sure that it's so uh, predictable, actually. And I yeah. think that, like, I think that um, it is, um, there's a range of factors that play into things. When I, when I was, uh, um, and I said that it was a farm town, but actually I would say it was an unsuccessful farm town in the sense that, like, you know, what had happened to a lot of New England um, um, farm villages going back 100 years was that they, had, uh, they were successful-ish in the 19th century until the Midwest started, there was farming in the Midwest. And it was so much more economic, economically viable to farm in these big um, lots in the Midwest 
that they that they knocked all of the farming out of uh, Massachusetts and and in Vermont and New Hampshire and Maine, where the it was hilly and there were rocks and it was uh, very hard to actually extract anything from the land. Yeah. So and they couldn't do these in because the, the property. Ownership was much small, like people own much smaller properties. They couldn't um, compete on a, in an economy of scale. So um, I think in some ways a way to think about this is that there is a, a sense of, um, um, I, you know, I don't want to extract, and, and, and oddly what I'm actually doing is talking about my college thesis when I was <laughs> an undergraduate. It was, it was like, on on this subject a little bit, so yeah. it was like that's what I'm kind of reverting to. So I can't really say. I mean, I think it's. Um, um, I, I do think that there's an enormous amount of uh, projection and judgment that comes on all of our sides, looking at how everyone is, uh, why the, everyone is choosing to believe in the things that they want to believe, and right. um, I, I, and judgment is particularly a prevalent thing now. And so I just I. I I like to kind of ride on the coat, like try to try to emphasize the empathy and totally. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and yeah. try to you know do do what I can I, in that respect um, for myself and to keep my myself sane and and not in a constant state of anger. Completely. Um, yeah. Well, were you um, were you drawing a lot? When I was a kid, yeah, uh, um, yeah. I my mom. I think from a very early age, you know, she she um, so she had gone to uh, the, my father would fought in World War II, and she was at Pratt actually for a year right at the end of World War II. And then the, a lot of the women were asked to leave Pratt to make room for the GIs, and my mother was one of those. So she she never finished studying art making. Um, she went into advertising actually in Boston, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then which is you know pretty remarkable if I think yeah. about it. And then she, um, when she got married, she became a, a homemaker, and uh, but she painted and did like she mostly painted still lives and stuff. And so she would put things in front of me, and I would I would uh, make a painting or like, and she would make a painting, and I can remember making paintings from the same objects. So I would learn from how she did things and. Um, um, so I have been painting from observation, which to a certain extent is what I still do uh, in, a, in, a, in a kind of convoluted way, um, uh, since I was very young. Yeah. And I've never quite changed that. And um, But it makes holding a brush very comfortable for me. I liked holding a brush. Yeah. yeah. Was, uh, is she still making work? She stopped. Uh, I, I mean, she, she, well, she goes to... A, she, she shifted. She's she for years has been making watercolors and for uh, uh, of of portraits. So she'd make these watercolor portraits, and she in the home, my hometown has a a portrait group, and they get together, and one of them volunteers to find somebody to pose in the in the room while the others do, but uh, do the painting, um, and they all supply food. That's cool. <laughs> um, so she. She has been doing that until quite recently. I think in the last, obviously because of COVID, she's you know, ninety-two. So yeah. and she um, and my father's ninety-five. So they they're very vulnerable. So they're not obviously. I don't think the portrait group is occurring right now. Anyway, right. Right. but I, but I zoom, think the, uh, <laughs> presumably not. But but uh, she 
she stopped for a couple other reasons. I think she felt it was harder for her to focus for long periods of time. And I think that um, also the kind of jockeying for position, perfect positions, oh, yeah. <laughs> was what she cut. I think she might have felt a little bit pushed aside and stuff. I think it's, uh, um, yeah, we forget how hard it is to be. I mean, it's easy, to, easy not to understand how hard it is to be old, you know. Well, hey, I'm like, <laughs> these days when I stretch canvases, I really feel it. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you know that means I mean? you're, at the, that's the, you're at the point where you've got to find somebody else to do it. <laughs> I think so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I used to have a maid, and then I went for, like, when I started teaching, there's a wood shop, and I, 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 I remembered how much I love making stretches because you really feel connected to the, mm-hmm. the whole process. And, yeah. you know, I mean, I've always gessoed the work, but I've mm-hmm. never you know, I had someone do that, but I, I started doing it again. I was like, man, this is really getting, this isn't easy when you work on huge ones, you know, it's mm-hmm. a lot of, a lot of work. <laughs> so I can't yeah. imagine being, you know, 90 and like knocking out big paintings or something. <laughs> well, Agnes Martin aside, like, right, right. <laughs> well, she did, she, I think she, as she got older, she reduced the scale commensurate with what she could manage herself. Like, which is, right. I think, a very beautiful, beautiful thing. That's what I've always, that's, I don't know if that's true, but that's what I have yeah, always isn't understood. That, isn't that like the arc of humans? Like when you're little, you make these little drawings and then you get bigger and then you go bigger. And as you get older, it's almost like in the human body kind of grows and then starts to shrink. It's just mm-hmm. this cycle of life, I guess. Except to Alex Katz. <laughs> that's true. Man. And he does those in like one day, too. Yeah, yeah exactly. I hope he's not making those stretchers. No, that would I'd, be amazing. I'd, <laughs> be depressing. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm also. I I don't share the, the love for stretcher making, but I do my own. Uh, and I haven't oil painted for a few years, but I'm really longing to go back to it. But in the oil, I certainly the surfaces. I work very uh, carefully on the on the gessoing um, yeah. of the surface, and I. Uh, but I, yeah, but I, I never enjoyed the stretcher making. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I feel like part of me wishes, I mean, it's, I'll make some furniture here and there, like mm-hmm. in the wood shops, like basic stuff. But I do love woodworking and I like fantasize about making these beautiful, like Nakashima style, like pieces. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not going to happen, but it's, I, I love wood. Like it's mm-hmm. nice to work with. Yeah. Um, so, well, whenever you were, you know, in high school, was, was art something you were thinking about or were you... You know, like what? What's the lineage of of you know taking art past the? It's around mom's doing it. I'm doing some drawings. I'm comfortable with it. To something that you were more serious about. I was definitely. Uh, I really loved making art all the way through high school, um, but I never took it seriously because I don't think anyone really introduced the idea to me that it could be about ideas. And um, and I had and, and and I had actually I think and I'm, I want to uh, I had Mrs. Hamilton as an advanced uh, uh, what is it advanced placement or history American history teacher oh, who was yeah. so inspiring and and was able to bring so much of a sense of how ideas you know how how history intersects with different kind of movements and 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 different um, assessments of like just trying to figure out what's happening is a very beautiful thing. And um, so that was so inspiring for me. I just assumed I would, in college, I expected to become a history major and uh, and did actually become a history major initially, uh, but also was at the same time taking a lot of art classes and 
I was there discovered, and it was because I think for some just getting access to some good teachers who, who and, and also peers who would talk about art from the point of view of the ideas. And, you know, I had a, my first teacher was a guy named Jim Butler, who is still shows in New York. And mm-hmm. uh, he was, I think, very young at the time. <laughs> and so I think maybe because of his age, he was so close enough to us that he was very inspiring and uh, particularly uh, particularly inspiring. I'm sure he's still a great teacher. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, and then ultimately a class with Vito Akanshi who came up to, came to the school and taught a class in a very small class. Whoa. Um, um, and it was only discussion, three-hour-long discussions on four days a week and uh, with projects. And <laughs> there were only, I want to say there was like somewhere between six, six to eight students and a couple of faculty sitting in um, because it was such a treat. And uh, it was Vito who completely uh, upended me. Like that, that was when... You know, I learned, I never even, honestly, and this is probably 19, what, I want to say, 1982 or so, mm-hmm. I didn't, hadn't heard of the Sex Pistols. <laughs> or the, um, uh, you know, just, there's so, like, he, you know, he would smoke in class. <laughs> oh, my God. Those well, days. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, he had these, like, French cigarettes with kind of a clove scent, and he would sit there, and he and he would... He was incredibly confessional, so he would talk about his, uh, his... I remember him vividly talking about the Catholic guilt of sitting in his apartment when his mother called and listening to her leave a message on the answer machine even though he was home. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I think even just to, like, to like, just explain how green, green I was, it was like, What's an answer machine? <laughs> it was kind of like the wow. Modern technology. <laughs> yeah, you could do that. You can, like, I didn't know you could hear, like, wow. Um, so. So it was good, those classes? Or were they, I, I could Vito's imagine classes? them being brutal, but was it. Great? You were talking about Vito Conti's classes? Yes. Yeah. Oh, he was not brutal at all. He was, uh, um, they were conversational. So we, we would just sit in a, essentially a circle and talk and he gave us projects so he would I still remember a couple of them probably he um, <laughs> this is actually a, I'm laughing because this is so relevant to what we're talking about but there was a there was a one project he had us advocate for the laps um, you know the the uh, the um, the ethnic group that's Traverses Finland, Norway, and Sweden, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and sorry, Lapland, Lapland right yeah. for the lap. So he's like, right. I want you guys to go, and we went to I went to a small liberal arts college. He's like, I want you to go out into the campus, and I want you to advocate for the laps. That's your project for, and we're going to come back. You're going to have a day to do it, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to walk around and look at the work. There was a public art component to the class. I don't remember exactly what the class was about. Mm-hmm. So we we would go out and. and and each of us did something. One person spray painted his car with free the laps, and I think he parked it um, in front of the cafeteria, but of the school. But that just happened also to be the roof of the build, of another building. So like we got in trouble for that. But then <laughs> we also got in trouble because of what I did, which was um, I decided that the way to get people to uh, to learn was to put out flyers for a meeting. 
And so, which is I, what I still do. And so I uh, put out flyers um, at announcing a meeting to learn about laps and the cause of freeing the laps. Um, and I hung them around. I think I had some idea that they should hang over men's urinals because that would be where people would have to look at my idea. <laughs> and and uh, what happened? And I gave the date and time of our class. And so um, what happened was that Amnesty International came because um, it is a real cause. Yeah. And they thought we were making light of it, which actually I think in truth Vito probably was because he had seen the graffiti about it in New mm-hmm. York somewhere. That was where the genesis was. So, so then we would, you know, this would elicit these incredibly uh, uh, rich conversations about everything. Like, yeah. um, and they would wander, <laughs> really wander. <laughs> and uh, um, he had us uh, design, another project was to design a, te- a, pla- a tete-a-tete. A place where you would people would come together to meet. This yeah. is in the middle of the winter, and like we, <laughs> it, it was a, it was fantastic. I mean, we must have had five or six projects, and each time we would, we'd have to want it would take days of wandering around, and you know we would look at something, and then we'd go back to where a heated room and talk about it, and then. Um, That's yeah. amazing! An amazing um, opportunity experience as a student. I mean, you were, you know, just thinking outside the box I'm sure like all the time like unpredictable you know kind of I I would imagine that really like you you worked some chops there that you know a lot of students don't normally get I think yeah I mean I think that's that's true I think that we were really fortunate and um the um and I think that also because of specifically because of who he was and what you know Everybody and he was such a figure. You know, he had like this olive. I think he probably to the day he died, he wore this kind of olive green kind of jack army jacket <laughs> or some version of it. Got a little more upscale over time. His and, closet uh, had like twelve of them or something the like thing. that. But he had basically wore jeans and a, and a, a black t shirt and a, a olive jacket, and he would smoke cigarettes and he had this kind of hair mm-hmm. um, and. He was, you know, always walking around like with a cigarette, <laughs> and he had such a reputation in the school, in part because of seatbed, because everybody knew in the school, yeah. everybody knew about seatbed, and so the, there was an incredible notoriety to the class, and so we were all investing, we were thrilled to be there, and we were investing a lot in it, and um, it it was, you know, he was a subversive guy, who, I mean. He wasn't a subversive guy, but he, he just almost accidentally was subversive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, no, but he would talk about um, a, um, you know, he would talk about his pieces like, um, you know, this piece where, I, if I'm remembering this correctly, he was in a, you know, in a pier um, um, and he, uh, in a completely empty, abandoned pier, um, and, he, and he invited strangers to come and tell them secrets. Am I remembering this right? But I think that key part of it is just the vulnerability. Like he yeah. just made himself so he was so open and vulnerable. He put everything of himself out there, and I think that that set an example for me in a way. It's like is that like I think um, approaching work, um, approaching art making. Uh, sh- you should risk things. 
You, right. or you, and you should be willing to fail. The failure will be interesting. You might learn more from it if you do. The, um, the personal, uh, allowing the personal to kind of imbue what you do, because that's in part can be where the vulnerability comes from. And he, he was that, that, I mean, he was so vulnerable actually. I mean, he was, he, he, in, in our experience there, he, he had to do also a public art piece for the, for the college at, while he was there. He had to design it and then it was executed over time. Um, he couldn't have done it. Like if he didn't, I think one of the students in the class ended up kind of supporting him and working him, we're, we're making it for him because uh, helping him through the engineering of it because it was a relatively complicated piece. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, um, I'm sure that's why he had his, I, you know, I, I lost touch with him and I can't pretend to know exactly how his studio worked, but I would assume that he was uh, quite um, supported. Like, you know, he, he was a man of ideas yeah. and um, the execution of them was less important to him to, in my mind and that was what... Um, and obviously as a painter, we're very invested in execution and, and, right. um, and imbue the execution with meaning in and of itself. So um, there is not a total parallel there, but it was, um, um, it was certainly a life-changing. I mean, we had a couple of other experiences like that with other artists too. You know, yeah. um, was that the moment you think when you sort of you know, caught fire and said, okay, here's, this is what I want to do. I want to devote my life to like making stuff or thinking in that way or you know engaging in the public that way or doing things to that extent you know i think i wanted to do things that were meaningful yeah and i and i i he really believed in what he was doing he only did things that he felt had meaning at least certainly at that time and um it was so obvious because he how the work came about was really uh, not a bother to him. It was really about the idea behind it. You know, it was a, a kind of Solowit type strategy of like, and he came out of being a writer. He was a poet. And so the, I think, and this is common is that I think a lot of writers who become artists can work like this a little bit, like yeah. where the, the genus, the, the heart of what they do is, is in the, is not in the execution. It's in the kind of content and the um, and what's evoked. Um, I mean, one of the I mentioned there are other artists that I, I've been influenced by. So I, when I lived in when we moved to New York, in the early '90s, I w- uh, supported myself in working for Adrian Piper, mm-hmm. and um, Adrian is another writer um, who is an artist. Um, um, I mean, she does both, but um, she has a degree in philosophy and has done a lot of writing, and is a beautiful writer. And uh, her work um, is similar in a way. It's, it's you know, if, you, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm thinking about it now, it's like I think it's also, it's intensely personal work. It's, it's uh, full of kind of raw meaning and um, sincerity. Um, and it takes different forms because the content varies. And um, some pieces are much more complete installations, but... You know, when when I saw her retrospective uh, at MoMA, I was just struck, which is something oddly I'd never really realized how much she is a figurative artist, like, <laughs> um, which had never really even I knew that she, I 
you know, I help help with some of these works that had drawings in them, and I still never okay. really thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> thought that's the it. the beauty of a show like that is you kind of you know can put it all together in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That idea. I just want to touch on that really quickly. The idea of meaningful art or art that has more meaning in it. Do you think that uh, there's art that has less meaning necessarily? Like, is an Agnes Martin less meaningful because it's not as defined? I guess maybe it's floating in more of that gray area that we were talking about. Well, I think her work is very meaningful. I mean, it's I think it's uh, so beautiful. And so uh, um, the the labor and the investment and the, the kind of... Um, um, to look at Agnes Martin is a you know you have is is a almost a form of meditation I guess and then yeah. that's into how I I don't I don't know I mean I'm not I I think maybe I should qualify what I said more to more to say that meaningful to me and right. like and and the, in using the kind of um, thresholds of meaning that I I understand and recognize for myself and um, that. The because we were talking about audience before. I mean, I, I think I've acknowledged that, like in some cases, my work has been made without thinking about an audience, and that would, in a way, um, mean that you know that the that it doesn't mean that the work is. It means that my intention in relation to the meaning of the work for an audience is not of my controller making, but that ultimately that you just still kind of we do take for granted that there is a there is a value to what we do. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, you asked a really tough question. I don't know the quite. I'd have to. I mean, I just circle back around about it a couple thought, of times. I just thought about it on the spot. I mean, it's so <laughs> that idea is really interesting because if. I mean, I grew up in Pittsburgh, and for me, Warhol's always been this figure, you mm-hmm. know, floating. And I think Warhol would probably say his work is not about, it's so not meaningful, it's just, you know, surface. You're, I'm just trying to reflect society or pop culture, and there's no meaning to it. But it's so meaningful now looking at it, and it's such pivotal work, and, mm-hmm. you know. It, it's hard to wrap mind around how, how profound it is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But but seemingly, or on the surface, he would he would advertise that it's not meaningful at all it's just a soup can it mm-hmm. means nothing <laughs> but it's almost like buddhist in a way it's almost like emptying out everything to where it becomes everything mm-hmm. yeah i guess yeah, i mean a I, complicated some, <laughs> yeah no we're all we shouldn't you know it's like it's so hard to unpack because it's just seems like it's all right there but then you realize it's just can be broken apart in so many different ways i um I, I think that there is so a. It's funny because I remember. I'm, actually, now I'm forgetting when it was. <laughs> Maybe it was September 11th. Like September 11th, I remember there were these these thought pieces that would say, you know, irony in art is dead. It's all sincerity now. And like I've always been a sincere artist. Like I've never. I wish I could be. I, I, I kind of long to be an art, you know, an artist who, whose work, um, can, can, um, 
where there's some degree of distance and where there, there is an, there's an irony to it. I don't, I'm not that guy. I just, right. and, I, and I'm not going to try to be that guy. I might have tried once or twice. In a, so, like, I'm sincere. I'm hopelessly sincere. And um, I, I think that relaxing into that um, does, if you, if, if you don't fight that, like, if you say, okay, like, whatever I really care about is going to be there. Like it's going and and it and maybe I can use my I can try to uh, simplify. It. I mean, like the way you talked about Warhol, kind of simplifying and emptying out to 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 some kind of hard nut to crack. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like all of a sudden it becomes really hard, like crystalline somehow. Um, you can think about that the same way in terms of kind of um, um, emotional connections that you that you like when I'm painting there are certain images that I feel some special connection to because mm-hmm. of um for whatever reason the image or the way that the uh way that I can the way that the paint and the brush flows over the image ends up drawing something out of the image that that to me um um is a um, getting into some some very it, it's where where there's a where there's a kind of unfettered emotion or some something there some level of commitment that I feel to the piece that's a, a connection that that is not breakable and I can generally when those things happen in pieces I can. I, and it doesn't happen all the time, but it, like when it does happen, I can look at the piece and and recognize it always. Like I can come mm-hmm. back to it and, and say, okay, I might have some sense of distance from the piece, but I'll still be able to look at it and say, okay, I I can see exactly what that connection was in that particular moment in time. Um, Do you think I, that's a connection with sincerity in a way? I I think that. Not exactly. I think it's more. Um, I think there are certain themes in my work over time, even outside of the work that's based upon community um, uh, community um, themes. Uh, from very early on, I think I was interested in um, uh, subject and. Uh, uh, position relative to subject. In some ways, I maybe can, I hope, talk about this a little more clearly than I could then. But I think that I was always, number one, making work that, where the process of going about making the work related to what the work was about. So all of my paintings have that virtually. Yeah. Um, and all of, a lot of them have to do with, um, thinking through the position of the artist or painter relative to the imagery and the painting and the subject. So like you can see often in my work, you can deduce how it's been produced and you can see my, because I said that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm somehow always have some degree of observation in my work. You see me looking into the imagery, you see 
the imagery in some sense is kind of looking back out. You see um, if there's a work is, and I started really only using photography in my mid thirties, but once I started doing that, the camera initially was in, included in the work. You would see the source of the image in the work itself. And so there's a kind of transparency in the work that, um, in the transparency of the making, but also a transparency to get hopefully some avenue towards me in it a little yeah. bit. And I think that even with the, uh, uh, to, to my judgments and to my, um, to, to the choices that I make, because I mean, a lot of this is about choice. And so it's like, um, now I find myself thinking, you know, most of the work that I do is derived from photographs that I might have taken 10 years ago or never really know intentionally, not typically not taken for the purpose of uh, making a piece of art. Yeah. Some of them more so than others, but, um, and the, um, the standing that I have relative to the piece still matters and is still expressed. And in some ways, um, the what I find myself doing now is uh, is trying to dig a little deeper into the imagery to find um, themes that are more. Um, I think I'm getting more confident to dig deeper into the imagery to find themes which are are um, which are a little closer to being clear-cut themes, like instead of having that nuance and gray area that we talked about before. Right. So, you know, like if um, my last show was uh, work that had, was about separation and bringing together, and so there were images of fences and images of uh, uh, a paintbrush touching a kid's face when they're um, having their face painted. Mm -hmm. And... Um, um, that by kind of just figuring out this is like the show can be about just separation and bringing together. It helped me kind of um, get a little bit closer into some kind of emotional, uh, it to be more evocative and like to find um, things that I could connect with more because I could invest a kind of broader meaning to them. Um, and uh, and it's funny because it's exactly those things like when when uh, when the pandemic struck and when the um, the we were all sheltered in our homes the that whole narrative that I had done in that show became something completely different. Oh, yeah. Like you know you could look at the images and go oh they shouldn't be touching each other. Right. <laughs> um, and now even like in the last two weeks because there's. Uh, uh, Certainly, uh, uh, there's 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 an element like there's race is a component in my work, like and 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 it's also um, it, it, it that also has meant that the work itself and the meaning of it, what I see in it, has changed. So. Uh, or has been been affected, and I think that's. Uh, I think it is really 
an opportunity is very beautiful as, as opportunity as an artist to like learn from that because I think we're you know I think that if activism is almost always about humility and learning then if you're sincere about it yeah. <laughs> um, then you know you with um, painting like using the imagery from activism in some ways and almost you have to kind of find out where that humility is in the work and you have to find uh, um, um, you have to find a way to um, at least in the relationships of work draw out some meaning you know um, yeah. well, how for, did an, it, for an audience how did it start the whole you know foray into the activism and you know its relationship to the the studio work um well so first i think that we i should just take one quick step back and say that i like i think we we as as uh i think because we i i grew up in the period of aids um activism was an inherent part of um are thinking, but like the moment that it, uh, the activism uh, became on a community level was kind of was brought about just simply from moving into a neighborhood that all of a sudden um, um, faced tremendous change, like un, an unfathomable change, and, yeah. and I think um, and very quickly, um, and I think the. Um, Sorry, what was the question? <laughs> it was a. It was the how activism, you know, started it to how you got to it through you know its relationship to working in the studio, or maybe uh, it wasn't through that, or maybe it was just a separate. Like I think you it, said that you started doing it separately, and then how did it merge? It 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 merged because it, there wasn't a choice. But there wasn't any bandwidth in my brain to do something else. Like I tried to keep them separate and. Uh, um, it it just it was hard to figure out where my painting was supposed to go. I just didn't have the energy to invest. Um, but if I pulled, if I just put the put them together, then um, I I didn't have to. I, I at first didn't, as I think I said, I didn't bother to think about what it meant. I just right. did it. Yeah. Um, I was pretty sure that it was a bad idea because everybody was telling me but I still had to do it and um, the um, the theme, you know the work that I would do as I said initially it was really pretty angry and like you know for example I did a uh, you know the, the, the this was a there was a really large real estate development that's really the trigger that drew me into this kind of activism and uh, it was designed by Frank Gehry initially, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Frank Gehry, everybody related to the development was removed. They wouldn't talk to the public or to the community, only through like very filtered um, and managed uh, scenarios. So uh, the New York Times did a, uh, a Q&A with Frank Gehry, you know, like one of these Times Talks things or whatever. It was yeah, literally yeah. that, I think. <laughs> this is like in 2005, I want to say. Mm-hmm. And um, um, so I went, and there were hundreds of people there. And um, there were a number of other people there for the same reason as I was, but they 
they we didn't know each other, and um, they asked. So we all were so eager to to ask Frank Gehry a question that some of us got a chance, and so I started to ask my question. And I think it was a pretty relevant and not confrontational question, and the uh, Frank Gehry turned white, and the um, and I had a microphone and. Uh, the the architectural critic for the Times, uh, who was who was moderating this, um, drove me away from the microphone by encouraging the audience to applaud me away. Like he said, we don't want to hear this question. We're not going to answer these kind of questions on the. And this is not what this is about, which is you know absurd. And yeah. uh, <laughs> and uh, and they and he said he said everybody clap your hands and. And uh, they clapped until I had to give, surrender the microphone. And there was a reporter from, I want to say it was the Observer um, there, who witnessed this. And so Frank, they announced that Frank Gehry was going to sign books across the, across the alley or whatever. I can remember it was like in a building. So it was like in the same building, but down the, down the hall mm-hmm. um, in a bookstore. And so um, I went waited in line <laughs> and when the reporter told the reporter told me he was going to be there so i we went together and uh i waited in line and uh got up to frank gary and he uh he said i know who you are <laughs> and i was like i just because i was from a neighborhood association that we had actually sent him a letter at inviting him to actually come to the community that he was designing this project for and produce introduce it to the community yeah. and and he's like uh, i i i can't answer anything that's that's for the developer the developer has to answer it and then they called in the security and they started ushering me away and i was like can i take your photo and, like, <laughs> and then i had like one of these old digital shaky camera like one of these things where if you had to stick your finger down on the shutter for about 30 seconds for it to take a picture right, right. so um i did I said, can i take your portrait and he's like yes so i like took his portrait and it was that it was like you know the, my hand was shaking yeah. um so i had got this really kind of moving face and that so i went home and that, that's what i made a painting of and he nice. looks really angry and you know what it's a good painting, and he deserved it. <laughs> I don't think that ever makes it into any Frank Gehry documentaries. But, you know, um, it's a... It, and actually, nicely, and this all neatly circles back to the Ursula von Reidingsvard and, like, public art and sculpture right. versus uh, other kinds of concerns. So it was like... Because Frank Gehry is certainly a, a public sculptor. Um, a, it's so uh, defensive about even having to think or talk about something that someone wanted to ask that wasn't just praising him about how amazing it was, I guess. I think that uh, architecture on the level that he's on um, in terms of achieving commissions is a political, uh, is is, is in part political. And so um, not just, and by that I mean that he has to um, show developers that he plays by their rules. And um, and I think he's very much that guy. And so, like, while he didn't, ultimately, the project was taken away from him. He designed the whole project. This is includes the Barclays Center. Yeah. He, he designed it, and then it was taken away from him. But they, he stayed quiet because they gave him 
the uh, building downtown, which he designed. And yeah. so same developer. So he had another project there. And so he, he, he was always going to play by the rules. And um, it's a, that's unfortunate because it, it also means that, you know, you have, um, you know, architecture shouldn't be separated from the place that it is being designed for. In my view, it's, it can be in some cases it's very successful, but it's pretty rare. <laughs> Most right. of the time it has to be, you know, drawn from the, derived from the place where it, where it's, uh, you need to speak to the people who are going to be living in it. You know? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Well, um, so how, like, where are you at now with the whole dynamic between, you know, activism, making paintings, you know, all that stuff? I, I've gone through an evolution. I, um, in 2017, I uh, had a, a, an overview of my Community-related painting at the grad at the at the, at the James Gower at the Graduate Center mm-hmm. and um, in Manhattan and and that uh, did a couple of things. I think it gave me some distance and it forced me to talk about my work more. Um, and it also let me see what my work looked like together and 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 feel feel like I understood where it had come from and where it was at that point and where it could go and. Um, also I became more aware that I was a like at the point that I recognized that that this work could be in public again like in the, in the with it had shown some but not much like that that I could feel confident about it and that I had a place as an artist with this work that complicated the activism because um, which is what really needed to happen, actually. <laughs> I mean, it's because I'm, I'd love to. I'm an artist. I that's who I am. That's how I feel most fulfilled, and um, and I am really. Uh, so I've been since that time, and it's not easy to do. Um, changing the. Um, Parameters, and I've been changing the relationship between the activism and the painting, and I've also been um, trying to reduce the activism to some some degree of success, but not always. And I um, think that, um, and I've certainly changed the role that I have as an activist, so that I'm not. Uh, I, I'm I'm I'm, tr- you know, and this is a hard thing to learn, but trying to kind of. Uh, uh, pass responsibility and and um, um, and not feel so responsible, and that's helped a lot with the making of the art, I think. But I think, by and large, you know that whole dynamic of um, putting work out into the world and getting feedback and get just that learning that occurs is so engaging, yeah, and um, and sucks you in. Um, and it, you know, it's it. I do feel like my work has been newly energized. Like I feel a lot more confidence about what I'm doing, and I feel and I and I think um, and am more ready to put ambition back into the work. Like I think uh, there's always been ambition, 
Um, but I think that certain kinds of ambition, like ambitions of scale and things, I've been more reticent to get to 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 deal with because the a particular scale scale kind of like Agnes Martin reducing her scale of work relative yeah. to her her degree of age. Um, yeah. I think that the amount of time I've had in the studio on long periods, uninterrupted, has um, um, increased. I used to get more interrupted time frames, so I would work smaller because that worked better. And yeah. now um, it was strategic. And now I am finding more space and more time to work in longer periods, and so I can up the ambition in terms of scale. I mean, work's been consistently ambitious, and it's like looks all like work from ten years ago. You could kind of see me doing that too. So it's like, yeah. Well, as a as a viewer, that's exciting. I'm I'm excited to see that. Are you? Do you have plans to show that stuff, or you know? Yeah. So I mean, I don't know when this will be broadcast, but first I'll have a piece in Nada in the like in a, in a short period of time. But the next show that I'm doing is. Um, in California, so uh, at a, uh, a, a college called Cuesta, so it's going to be mm-hmm. a, a a show which will be really interesting for me because it's actually it, assuming that the schedule allows and right. the sample and to, to, for this to this to this moment anyway, this the plan is for this show to be roughly around the time of the election, maybe a little bit before. Nice. So um, the work will be, you know, work generated at, from Brooklyn in California. So that's really helping me think about my choices and uh, of what I'm putting together. And um, it's a, and strip it of things, you know. So that's, that's it, while also relaxing into certain kind of locale, like topicality and allowing that to kind of, with more specificity and intentionality kind of be there at the right moments. Um, I, um, yeah, I'm excited about it. So that, that's what I'm working on. And I, and I, um, it will have some older work and some new, uh, hopefully a lot of new work in it. So I've I've been doing that. Um, Yeah. It seems like the, uh, the soil's fertile for, for this. I mean, in what timing, right? I mean, hopefully, I mean, no one knows right now what timing is, but Mm -hmm. hopefully that, that works out because I think that would be great timing. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited if it works out. Um, it and it's too, and then they don't know. Nobody knows, right? right? Nobody even knows if next semester is going to happen, yeah, so <laughs> or weird. They, they assume it's going to happen, but what form is going to happen? So they don't, you know. It's a um, painting is, you know, not a, necessarily a, a virtual medium. So <laughs> yeah, kind of need to, to be there. Yeah, you kind of do, but yeah, um, they're talking about like where you know I teach, and and they're talking about you know people who work in laboratories and stuff like that will obviously need to have some access to that, and and you know studio art kind of falls under that because you mm-hmm. kind of have to be there making stuff. Mm-hmm. Even I guess if your classes are remote, you know you need to be somewhere to make it. Mm-hmm. It's not not every uh, college student has access to a a big apartment where they could just work on big paintings or sculptures and, you know, or especially, like a, a wheel to throw ceramics or whatever mm-hmm. it is. So, yeah, especially in New York. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know how, I mean, I'm curious about this from, I, cause I, I taught last semester in the fall, but I didn't teach this semester. I'm, I, I feel like I dodged a bullet because I, I don't know how you do teach painting in a, 
um, in a virtual. I did it. it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, unfortunately, I I was teaching a seminar class and then advanced painting, which is, you know, a lot of that course. Uh, you know, I'm going over readings, and we're bring. I'm bringing visiting artists in through mm-hmm. remotely, anyways. So you mm-hmm. know, it was a lot of discussion based stuff. So I think that was, and we, but we were doing critiques over Zoom. You know, looking mm-hmm. at work and everyone talking about it, and you know, it went surprisingly, you know, a lot better than I anticipated. Like I think there was there were some really great aspects to it, actually. And uh, and I learned after a while for, you know, a painting class that you don't actually have to talk the entire three hours for every class. <laughs> they were kind of like, are we going to get some time to work here? Or what? <laughs> and trying to like make up for it, you know, give them their money's worth. And you realize, mm-hmm. oh, well, this is a studio class. They're going to need some time to work. But I think it was, you know, you know, people think like, oh, it's like online classes. Online courses are developed and they're pre-existing and they're, it's not live. Like people aren't mm-hmm. sitting there teaching you each week. So I think there was... Uh, you know, it, it it can work really. I mean, it's not ideal, but you can make it work. And I think mm-hmm. it, you know, artists, if if nothing else, we're creative and think of creative ways of thinking about you know, sort of talking and inspiring and and getting people moving on what they're doing. You know, no matter whether it's online or in person or you know, in what form. Mm-hmm. Ideally, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just um, not easy. No, I think I think it's also just like I felt so much for my peers who had to had one syllabus and then all of a sudden had to rethink everything oh, yeah. on the fly um, in a few weeks to get it up and running for the rest of the semester. And um, that's that. I don't know know if I could have done that so easily. And yeah, I, yeah. yeah, keeps um, you on your toes. <laughs> never, yeah, never, which is good. Never a dull moment in two thousand. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> I don't want to over talk about it, but I mean, it really does feel like, geez, 2020. (laughs) It's heavy. It is. And I I also think, you know, I I think that it's generational. Like the experience for for, um, people who are younger is is even looms larger, you know, it's like, and the implications for um, just how somebody who is, um, got all the open questions in their life has to deal with all of them in this kind of a context is just you know brutal um, yeah <laughs> and you know yeah. when you get older it one of the beauties of, of aging is that you kind of just don't care about certain things don't matter quite as much you know what I mean but like if you were having your high school graduation this year I mean that is like really tough because mm-hmm. that's such a monumental Thing in your life, you know. Yeah, I have two nieces with college graduations, and but they, I, you know, uh, the level of invention that has come out of this yeah. from, from people and the rethinking of uh, social uh, norms and and the the uh, the persistent rituals of life that everyone feels from weddings to graduate uh graduations to proms all thankfully you know like maybe a lot of that stuff will get thrown out like maybe they can rethink like it's going to change like imagine if the wedding industry all of a sudden were you know altered wouldn't that be like not so bad like yeah yeah. like (laughs) Like that money making thing (laughs) 
you know, where it's just like uh, this gigantic production. Well, for certain people, that would be totally fine. And for other people, that would be dreams crushed. <laughs> yeah, but I guess like think about how to do it yourself uniquely. Like right. maybe that's the right. So the, like not everyone is buying the same corsage. Yeah, and the, we, don't, <laughs> we don't have to lean on all that stuff for right. every single thing. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah, the people, yeah. it will force people to think outside the box. Mm-hmm. I think it already has. So, yeah, But yeah. Thank, in, in this sense, thank God for the internet because you can still feel somewhat connected. I mean, a quarantine with no, none of this would be, certainly for me, it would be a lot tougher. And for my mm-hmm. kid, you know, because like mm-hmm. kids can play games online and talk to each other now and look at each other. It's pretty cool. So, I mean, I think that lessens the blow a touch. And I'm sure also having a child home, like I know it's, it's I'm sure it's, it's, uh, it, it has, it's, 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 it's an extra obligation in your life that you probably, in terms, but in time wise, but yeah. there's a spark and a, and a unpredictability to it, which, um, we have to have to work to break. Yeah. Like, and 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 ours were kind of okay at doing that to a certain extent. But this is a long period of time, and so it's like <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> everyone's imaginations are just so limited. Right, and it's right. like a <laughs> and and there's a you know, and I you know this. There's no if everything is just going to fall within a certain set of parameters all the time. If you're, ne- you know, you're not going to be able to engage friends regularly and like physically, and it's definitely, you know, in, in in person, it's just um, it wears you down. It does, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's not easy. It's a test, but I guess that's what this year is 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 proving. It's a test. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, and then because in the, on the activist side, I see how government, which has to do all this outreach, and um, in theory has to do all this outreach. And, <laughs> I, <was gonna> um, <laughs> I mean, they have these kind of um, um, schemes that they need, I mean, not uh, <laughs> um, they have these <laughs> that generally was not cho- uh, carefully chosen word. Um, like they have these um, protocols that they have to follow for outreach in some circumstances, and like. And they have to say, oh, we really care about reaching out to people. But in truth, most cases, it's much more efficient not to have that happen. Yeah. And um, this is like, um, um, it's just, a, it's a gift to that, to everybody, yeah. like who wants to avoid much scrutiny. So I, I mean, I think, you know, if I were to encourage everybody who's listening in New York to pay attention to their local community boards where things might be unfolding, <laughs> they're not so great. And uh and pay attention, just, I mean, we, it's one thing on a national level because the drama is played out across the media, but on a lot of, a lot of these smaller scale things, um, it's, um, there's, there's all sorts of things sliding under the radar right now because yeah. everyone's focuses are between COVID and Black Lives Matter, there's focuses everywhere else. So, um, yeah. And that's when where it hits, that's where it hits home, right? Those, those local issues, you know. Yeah, and I guess I guess it gives me a whole new set of things to figure out how to how to how to represent in some way or find out what it you know. It's a um, I'm so used to these in person um, situations, which I you know um, can take something from. So now it's like 
all this virtual stuff is uh, so distant and yeah. and yet distance and um, has been a part of my work for a long time. It's been one of the themes. So and separation. So it's like uh, <laughs> it's right there. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I usually ask people, you know, well, how can how can people find the work and check it out? I mean. I want to open that up to you, but also anything else that you want to sort of, you know, I mean, you were mentioned, mentioning talk to your local community board or whatever, <laughs> whatever you want to share with people. Please do. Well, you, you can find my work at, uh, online. You can, my, uh, just Google my name. Um, yeah. it's, I got a website and I um, show with Stephanie Theodore. Um, the, uh, um, in terms of, It, you know, I don't. I, I mean, I know that. I mean, one of the things that I've been wrestling with, like, is how to, as artists, how to, how to, um, how to, you know, where, where is, where, what's the place for your work in this moment? Like, and this is like, and while this is probably a moment that will last for, you know, some period of time it's not it's, it's, it will end right. um, I think um, that question of like how do you as artists address such uh, the contemporary moment when it is so overt and so so present like how what choices do you make and and like I think um, one of the things and I've talk to friends about this too um it's just it's a it's a challenge as artists because we're so used to putting our like part of what we do is put ourselves forward like we're we're putting our names forward we're we're showing you know like on instagram we're putting up images of our paintings and saying this is what they or our art the art that we're making and saying this is what i'm producing this is what i'm doing and this is a moment where that that kind of gesture feels um, um, empty and inappropriate, and um, and so the response in a lot of cases has been people like marking a relationship with our time politically and and explaining who they are, mm-hmm. and so I guess what I would just encourage is like if you if instead of doing that to the public, you find some private ways to do that and see how the action, action um, differs like if you if you're if you're if you're concerned with the Black Lives Matter movement or you're concerned about the incredible inequity in terms of the way that the coronavirus has affected the American population and how it, and the kind of um, economic and racial divides that is demonstrated so starkly. Like, if you're concerned about those things, then um, find an avenue um, to to do your small thing to address that. Like, and I, and I you know, um, I, as a community activist, I kind of look a lot at uh, dislocation and and and. Uh, and actually, um, legal representation for people who are often going to be moved out of their homes or mm-hmm. 
Um, and I think, you know, we, we're moving into a point when we don't know the, the, the effect of what's happening with the economy hasn't really hit home yet. Um, and that will happen. And yeah. um, city and state budgets and federal budgets are going to get cut in a lot of different ways. And um, so I guess it's just remember that as much as focused as, as we all are on this now, um, in the unfolding months, it's going to, the implications are going to play out harshly for probably exactly the same people who have been, deal, been dealt with harshly already. So yeah. let's try to find quiet ways to have that, um, have that, um, to, to mitigate that. Right. And to do yeah. something that's, you know, can make that change and difference. Not just a protest selfie. Right, exactly. <laughs> that was a very queer way to put it. <laughs> I, I think mean, I prob- <laughs> we're all thinking it, right? It's like, hey, look at me, look what I, you know, but, mm-hmm. but then actually doing something. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, and it's not, and, and I just want to say that there's so many people who are doing this. Like, and I, yeah. and I it's, it's not, um, it's been, amazing to see you know we have in in our neighborhood uh people started a mutual aid group and um, mutual aid is you know so it's it's remarkable the enthusiasm to participate and um i hope it sticks around for a while um and and no judgment to it if it doesn't because i know all everyone's priorities will go elsewhere but do your best to keep your focus going over the long term let's keep this you know uh, some measure of focus spread out over a lifetime is going to make a lot bigger difference than you know an intense focus for twenty minutes. Definitely, so. and I think just being in the water. I mean, you know, it's easy to surf the big wave when it comes because it's coming anyways, and you get on mm-hmm. it and you go. But then, you know, you're going to paddle back out and stay in the water. You know, and I think, and it doesn't have to be a giant wave to be out there to make a difference. You could just be in the water, like little acts of things that you could do in day-to-day interactions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it it can be like, you know, that. It doesn't have to be this, that, or the other. It can be little things or whatever you can do, but just staying involved in that, I think, is mm-hmm. key. And that's something that, like, painfully in witnessing all this, it feels like that, you know, endless cycle of where there's the upright, there's like a little bit of change or thoughts about it, but then it just kind of like gets quiet again. And, you know, we need to sustain this sort of uh, change in any way possible, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That yeah. seems like a good note, doesn't it? <laughs> Sustaining focus, I think it's a really good way to, you know, some, some degree of focus anyway. I think that's, um, that's a good, definitely a good message to send out there. Well, and we try to do that in the studio all the time too. <laughs> that's right. Turn off that phone and like sustain focus. <laughs> Students in the classroom, sustain focus. <laughs> yeah, that's harder. It's not easy. No. <laughs> uh, well, wow. it's it's been great to talk and mm-hmm. catch up. So uh, thanks so yeah. much for doing this. Oh, it was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. I hope I, um, I yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. That was great. Thanks. Mm -hmm.